Hello, and thank you for checking out this episode of the From the Frontline podcast. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a key voice from the NHS or social care to discuss some of the key challenges and changes that impact the treatment and care we all receive. Throughout this podcast series, we'll be answering some of the big questions which face health and social care today, such as why are there massive delays in A&E? How do we beat the NHS winter crisis? And how can we make the future of digital health accessible for all? We hope that you'll finish each episode knowing a little bit more about the major NHS headlines and what needs to change if we are to deliver the best possible care for everyone in the UK. The From the Frontline podcast is brought to you by Healthcoms Consulting, who are part of the PLMR group. We hope you enjoy this episode. On this week's episode, we are going to be talking all things the NHS winter crisis. Uh, we're delighted to have Richard Sloggett of the future, of Future Health on the podcast uh, this afternoon. Richard, really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for coming on and chatting us through this. I suppose before we get into talking about the NHS winter crisis, it'd be great to get a little bit of a sense of your background and the work of Future Health in this space, really. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's great to, great to be here. And thanks so much for the invite. Very topical conversation. I mean, my background is I was the special advisor to Secretary of State Matt Hancock from 2018 to 2019. So that was around the time of the NHS long-term plan. Uh, I was also the head of health and social care at the think tank uh, policy exchange. And I've got a background in UK Parliament and consultancy focused specifically on healthcare policy. Uh, Future Health Research Centre has been going for about a year and a half or so. uh, And we focus on sort of three main areas of healthcare. We're looking at the prevention agenda, so and the public health agenda, so issues like obesity and vaccination and smoking. We've done research in those sorts of policy areas. We've got a piece of work or pieces of work going on in the innovation and technology space. How do you transform and get some of these very exciting technologies into the health system? And then the third piece we're looking at is the connection between health and the economy, which we saw obviously really clearly through the pandemic. And now as we come out of it, you know, how can you get, you know, a, a healthier and a wealthier nation? So that's the sort of broad sort of policy platform that we're looking at. And we publish regular papers uh, and research on those issues. Amazing. I mean, we're really grateful for your time. And as you mentioned, it's a really topical uh, point of conversation as we lead up to winter. Um, I suppose from where I'm sitting and where lots of our uh, listeners will currently be at, there is this general understanding of this idea of an NHS winter crisis, which tends to pop up in our political discussions and our news headlines around this time of year. Um, And I suppose people will probably have an understanding that there is a sense at which NHS capacity is stretched in the winter months. From where I'm sitting, beyond that kind of headline and that basic understanding, actually what the NHS winter crisis looks like and what it constitutes, it would be great to just get your sense on how you would describe that really and what the key factors at play are. Yeah, I'm very happy to. I think there's there's two main things that come into it and they're both quite obvious, but the impact of them is is not necessarily as obvious. And and I'll explain. The first is obviously the weather. So it obviously gets colder over 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 the winter. And what you find is as the temperature drops, particularly if you get temperature starts to drop below about five degrees, you get increases in uh, admissions to the the health system and you also get increased death rates. So for every one degree, the temperature drops below five degrees, you have a 4% increase in the the death rate. So you're seeing that pressure come in. So if you have a particularly bad cold snap or the temperature drops, you're going to get more people being admitted. Now that is older people, um, uh, typically, and also people with 
other health conditions so respiratory conditions some heart conditions uh, and also you might see things if you go for a particularly severe cold snap around hypothermia or indeed people picking up injuries people going to work falling over because it's icy etc so there is this as weather gets colder people's health needs do increase and that does put a burden then back into their to, to the health system um you also you also see i think the second point is on flu so we obviously that is the time of year you know particularly where we are now you start to see cases start to tick up and start start to rise and where we look for that is usually we look across to the southern hemisphere which has its flu season obviously uh, in our summer this year the australian flu season looks like it's been sort of higher than in previous years and obviously flu has been lower due to the pandemic due to some of the restrictions and australia have very very severe restrictions around covid lockdowns etc but i think this flu season has been called the worst in the last five years so and then that obviously plays through to what happens here usually there is some there is a relationship between what happens in the southern hemisphere and what happens here so flu is obviously something that picks up as well uh, and so you put those two things together you've got a drop in temperature and you've got a rise in flu those are two key driving factors into why the health system finds itself often in in, an, in a cycle of increased demand interestingly on things like a and e you the number of people who attend a and e drops over the winter which is interesting but the number of people who are admitted to a bed goes up because of the severity of the condition that they are present, presenting with so that also puts a lot of pressure into the hospital system and then you've got a challenge around how you get can you get high levels of occupancy and then that creates challenges around and managing that demand and getting that demand out of hospital into the into the social care system so what you find around the winter time is the, the cold weather plus flu are a combination which can put pressure into the system now obviously we know in the winter in the uk it gets cold uh, we don't always have the flu is a much more variable piece and actually when i was in government in the winter that i was in on 2018 2019 we didn't have a particularly bad flu season which actually meant that the pressure on the system wasn't as bad as it had been in previous years if you went back to 2017-2018 and jeremy hunt was the secretary of state he called that probably the worst winter on record and simon stevens said the pressures were pretty much unprecedented in the nhs's 70-year history because there was a particularly bad flu season so in, in, in a way, the two uh, pieces interact. The, the sort of temperature is important. As I say, as that temperature really drops, you do have a noticeable impact on population health and then the, the severity of flu. So those two variables come together to put a level of demand into the system, which then the system needs to be able to cope with. I'm interested in terms of the language that we use around this so-called NHS winter crisis. And I suppose from what you've just said, it would appear that by the combination of factors around flu and the decrease in temperatures, there is an inevitability about increased demand on our NHS services. Now, the point at which that goes from there being an increased demand into it being felt as a crisis for the NHS, I wonder how much of that is just the language that we use um, and whether there are factors that go beyond there potentially being a particularly harsh flu season which tip the scale from beyond increased uh, need for capacity to what we would call a crisis. And if there is a crisis, 
what are the key factors that really play into that? Yeah, well? so I think it's a good point. If this this word crisis is regularly used, and is often used most winters. Actually, someone will talk, will use it. So, and then there is a question mark around: Well, is it a crisis if it's a sort of you know recurring event? It's probably not a crisis, so it probably doesn't classify. I think the interesting thing, if you look at where we are this year, is after say two years now of COVID. And the pressures that has put in the system with delaying operations, putting pressures on staff, um, and restricting access to services, and that backlog that has built up, both on the elective side but also in the primary care population health side, that that sort of demand is, is is even higher now going into the winter. So you've got these kind of like big pressures going in. COVID is still with us, and there are some signs that the rates are ticking up, although the connection to the hospital admissions is not yet being seen again. It's, it's, that link has not yet been made. But you've got these large backlogs of care now going into this winter, which I think is going to make this winter in particular really, really difficult um, versus, say, even previous ones. Now, this, I think, would, could constitute what you would define as a crisis versus, say, when I was in government, as I said, in that 2018-2019 winter, where winter is never good in the NHS, but did it qualify as a crisis? I would say versus if you do the comparisons on the data, it probably did, did not. So I, th I think why people are thinking of this winter as being a crisis is because of where we are at with our health system in terms of the demand that's built up through COVID, the pressures on the workforce, um, and those two factors alongside the changes in the temperature plus potentially difficult freezes and you put all of that together that and you're looking at i think that could constitute a sort of crisis management approach and crisis management plan the key, the key sort of point of your question though is what can you do about this kind of get out of this sort of cycle of um yeah, of recurring recurring events it's very very difficult one of the things when i was in the department i remember the winter planning meetings came earlier and, and there was always discussion about we need to you know, it got to sort of early summer and you were thinking, right, we've got to start planning, we'll start looking at that Australian data coming through, we've got to start thinking about how we can manage our services. Your levers are limited if you haven't got a huge amount of additional investment. And what you really need to do is you need to put new capacity into the system, particularly beds, but those beds need staff. And that's, I'd say, the, the biggest rate limiting factor on managing winter in the NHS is, is staff. So again flu let's take flu for example if you have a flu season a lot of nhs staff will get flu uh, well there will be a portion that will get flu they will be off sick we saw this with covid and covid restrictions one of the challenges when you tried to restart services was staff having to isolate and take time out and um, and some of the impacts of that so it's not just patients who are coming forward it's also your workforce which is already underneath where it needs to be is under is going to be under more pressure so your capacity is more constrained there are other things you can do. So the vaccination programs that, that we regularly see rolled out and um, you know, for flu and, and other conditions, it, good comms campaigns around those, start those as early as you can. There, there is obviously a delay. You've got to get the vaccine, uh, you've got to get the right vaccine built and then you've got to roll it out to, to people. But getting people in early to do the prevention agenda with the right communications and the right, and again, the unique capacity in primary care, in particular in pharmacy to do that. And we're seeing at the moment, sort of 30 million GP appointments a month, which is really, really high for August, September time. So, so I think there are some things that you can do, but they do cost money and they do require a degree of resort, a degree of uh, infrastructure, which you need to be able to be able to build. And the challenge I think going into this winter is there isn't much resilience in the system from a sort of beds 
perspective or a staff perspective, which and in primary care as well, which means that actually you've got sort of very high, potentially very high levels of demand, and you and your supply is, is is under a lot of pressure. And that mismatch, I think, is why this winter is being called a, a sort of potential genuine crisis that, that we are looking at. I think that's really interesting, and I think I'm keen to come back to those potential solutions in, in just a bit. And I think there's a really interesting point that you raise around those dual parallels of workforce and capacity in terms of physical bed space, in terms of you might make an effort towards increasing bed capacity, but if you don't have the staff or the resilience within the workforce that you mentioned to actually man those beds, then you kind of you re- recreate the same issue that you were originally trying to to tackle. Before we get to that, um, I suppose from my perspective, uh, when we talk about an NHS winter crisis, uh, efforts that are made to to tackle it um, are made at a national level often. uh, And the NHS winter crisis is very much seen as a national crisis in terms of from the news headlines that I read, the sense very much is that the NHS is under pressure everywhere and anywhere. Uh, and that I, and I, but my sense is that that probably isn't an accurate reflection of actually what the winter in the NHS looks like in terms of how it is mapped across England. So I just wondered if you had any sense on that, really, the reality of it. Yes, um, I do. We've just published some research, actually, with a uh, in, in conjunction with a healthcare management consultancy called, called Acumentis, so looking at some of the variations in pressures across the new integrated care systems, the 42 systems that came into being in just July this year, who will have... I think an important role this winter in the sort of planning and coordination uh, services. And what we found was there were 16 of those 42 systems that were under high levels of pressure, both in primary care or in amongst the GP services, but also in secondary care. So they were also under pressure in the sort of hospital hospital sector. And we looked at nine indicators, which covered everything from uh, staff, uh, GP to patient ratios through to GP waiting times, four-hour waits in A&E, 18-week waits and long waits in, in, in hospitals. So we looked across the whole sort of primary and secondary care piece, really, and then knitted the data together to say, right, so how, where in the country is under most pressure? And if you look at those systems, so there were a series of systems, as I say, which, which really are sort of struggling. So if you, if you look across the patch, it's places like Kent and Medway, uh, Sussex, uh, Bedfordshire, um, Leicestershire. Those, these are the places where... Actually, if you look at the data, they're, they're under quite a lot of strain and patients' access to services appears to be more challenging. Then if you look at, there are, a, a, there, are there are a set of systems where actually the access appears to be working okay and they seem to have got, you know, they're, they're moving forward in, in certain directions. We include some case studies in the report, as an example, from Coventry and Warwickshire, where they've got a very good uh, data platform, which is helping them manage their waiting lists across both primary and secondary care. And uh, the, some of the places, Coventry and Warwickshire, Cheshire and Merseyside was another one where, again, you've, if you look at the data, they're not quite as under as much strain as, as maybe some of the other places are, which, which is 
So the narrative, I would agree with you, the narrative of an NHS crisis, because the NHS is obviously the end is national. So, and we see it as a national thing, it's based on equity and we can all access it. But in reality, it is a series of more regional and local services, all of which are in starting this winter in very, very different places. Some are starting it in an okay place, as I say, there's some examples in the report, but there are also some places where actually they seem to be under a huge amount of pressure. And then from a planning perspective, that's really interesting because then you can sort of say, right, so what more resource help can we give to those areas where they are starting from behind? What options do we have? Um, how can we share resource from other areas? Um, and then you can try and build sort of resilience and uh, sort of uh, strategic plans for those areas to try and to, to try and tackle elements of this and, and politically tackling that variation I think is very important for government because uh, as I say the NHS is a national service and the expectation is you should be able to regardless of where you are in the country access the services and treatment that you that you need so yes it's not a it is in a way a the NHS winter crisis is framed as a national crisis but you could it is actually a series of is highly variable depending on where you are in the country and how your services are, are, are structured. Uh, I suppose in terms of how we sort of draw this conversation together in terms of what is required to break the kind of cyclical nature of an NHS winter crisis, I suppose in highlighting those examples of best practice where perhaps certain trusts are better prepared and do fare better in terms of the additional capacity that's put on them in the winter months. That's got to be a key part of it from where I'm sitting in terms of what we look like long term. I suppose we've talked a little bit about the immediate challenges and the immediate requirements um, as well. Before we look at the long term, I am keen just to sort of highlight and specify the immediate um, requirements and the immediate steps that need to be taken particularly at a central government uh, level, I suppose, as we look to the coming months and winter? So I think there's a, there's a few things you can do right now, which government has yet to do. So obviously we, got, we had the R plan for patients a, a, a couple of weeks ago before party conference, which had some fairly sensible, if undramatic, I would say, policies in it, you know, things that are regularly sort of pushed out, whether that's uh, getting pharmacy to, to do more, unlocking digital solutions, uh, moving care into different settings, all of those sorts of things, which, which are incredibly sensible. Um, but whether they're going to be enough to move the needle based on that demand supply challenge that I've set out, I would say is, is debatable. I think the main area you've got to go into quite quickly is the workforce. So that feels like everywhere you go, everyone you speak to says that it's our, it's our biggest, biggest challenge. And what you can do in the short term is you can really focus on retention. And from a doc and if you want to make sure you're clearing the backlogs of care in particular, you need doctors in, in order to do that. And I think the main area there is this pension issue, which has been talked about quite widely. Uh, and can you do some you know, pension reforms now, which signal to doctors that you want them to continue working, that they won't be penalised for doing more shifts or just for, just for doing the number of hours that they're doing, 
can you make sure that they stay in the service this winter and continue to keep the service operating? Because what often happens, Matt, is when you get when the service gets re up against it and beds are a problem, is you just get a cancellation of elective operations. So that is often that can happen in particularly January, February time. And I think given the backlog is now seven million, the new data says seven million. And from a government perspective, that that number they don't want to see that number going up much, much more. You've got to try and keep those operating theatres open, and you need doctors in order to do that. So I think one of the first things you you could do is you could make an intervention. On the, on the whole issue of issue of pensions, which would help you with a retention issue. And that would be quite a bold statement as we go in, into winter. I mean, obviously, we've got the chance of coming back and do another sort of fiscal event um, fairly soon. Uh, whether there'll be anything in that, I don't know. But they, they go, it does feel like that issue, until it's grass, we're going to see a, a sort of leakage out um, of you know experienced staff who could help with this problem. The other, the other area I think is quite interesting is on is on the data piece. So, what, one of the things through the research that we did, which I thought was quite interesting, was as soon as you start to look at the data and start to put different bits of the data sets together, you do start to get quite an interesting picture emerging of how certain variables connect or even don't connect to one to one another. And particularly if you look at qualitative and quantitative data, so we looked at some patient experience data alongside some of your your core performance data. But I think for ministers in the department looking to hold the NHS to account and try to support different systems to move forward with some of their recovery work, getting access to up-to-date granular data that can help inform decision-making, resource planning, holding people to account, I think is also really, really uh, important here. Because too often, I think what you find is the data that is available to the national decision makers, particularly maybe on the political side, is, is not as up to date as it could be. And that, that then means that the, the ability to make decisions and, and deliver some changes is potentially more, more constrained. Um, so I think something on the workforce, um, and I think the pension issue feels like the wrong that you could do pretty quickly, send the right message, I think would be really good. And alongside that, I think better, better access to better data and information to inform better decision making and resource planning, I think is also going to be to be really, really critical. Those are two things you could do now. They would cost money, particularly on the, on the pension side, but I think you, you don't want a doctor, you want to try and address this doctor retention problem in particular, because it's so, so critical. I suppose from my perspective, the data point that you raised, you raised kind of goes from that immediate to sort of a medium term solution, I suppose, as well, in terms of how we set the NHS up for dealing with future winters in terms of the data that's available. I suppose if we just finally turn to what can be done more in the long term um, around solutions to the capacity issues that the NHS faces in the winter time, I just wondered if there were any key points that you'd highlight on that. Really. So, so yes, I think on the on, I totally agree on the on the data point. It's both it both give you short term operational grip, but also give you medium term planning. Uh, ability. Uh, I also, I mean, the NHS often gets a sort of bung of money, which it just did actually in the other plan for patients, it got 500 million for discharge. And it has a role, and that happens every year. Every year there is a win. And there is an argument that should that money get baked in earlier to support better, it can still be ring-fenced or earmarked with, but why not set that budget much earlier? Why not have it, it? It would give you more flex if you release it in September, October, your ability to utilise it is maybe slightly slightly less. I remember being in the department having people within the NHS say that you know your winter planning starting in the summer, so is ours, but we don't know how much money we're going to get until very late on. And by that point, you know, the ability to do really innovative things 
the window is is much more constrained, particularly as you know, demand coming into the system goes up. So, you know, there, there, there is a window, I think, in the summer to kind of say to systems, this is what you're going to get, um, or even just bake it into baseline and, and just do it in a slightly different way. So funding is something that I think needs would need to be looked at alongside the, the data piece. And then, look, I think in the, in the medium term planning side, you've got to do you've got to do some stuff on capital and workforce. Those are the two big great limiting factors on this system. We've got 10 billion pound backlog for capital maintenance spending. We've got workforce, which has got 100,000 below where it needs to be. You've got to, but that requires an invest, a set of investment decisions, which I think for government at the moment feels very, very difficult because we have a government administration that doesn't want to raise tax. So, and that the only way really you would be able to do do that unless you wanted to raise borrowing, which the markets don't want you to do, is through a tax policy. So, um, my my medium term view is we do need a sort of significant intervention on both of those things if we're going to try and get out of this, you know, crisis sort of cycle of, of, of year to year. Look, the, as I say, the winter will always be difficult in the NHS because of those two things I talked about, the, the change in the weather and the flu. And depending on how serious they are, that will that will always generate pressure. But it's you can you can't really do much about, about those. What you can do is you can do something about their the side of the system which is designed to match up to that. Can you build more resilience and flex in that system so that it is more match fit to uh, to, to tackle it? So so yeah, there there are some things you could do, but we are talking about further investment and transformation funding that you would need in order to do that. Richard, we're really grateful for your time. Uh, it's been a really interesting discussion. And I no doubt that is one that will continue to dominate our headlines in the immediate months. But I suppose for our listeners in terms of avenues of exploration, in terms of how we find a way out of the winter crisis uh, and the cycles of winter crisis, um, I hope it's been useful food for thought for, um, for our listeners. So really appreciate your time. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the From the Frontlines podcast. If you have any thoughts about our conversation or would like to get involved in a future episode, please email from the frontline at healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. If you'd like to chat about our work as one of the UK's top health and social care public affairs agencies, please visit our website, healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. Thanks again for listening.